what brought me to psychiatry? I wanted to spend a lot of time with patients. I wanted a lot of FaceTime. I wanted to hear their stories. You're listening to Case Confirmed with Mira and Dina. Dina, Vijaytha, and I created this public health podcast series to help keep people up to date on the latest in public health. Each month, we interview a different expert in the field. Stay tuned, and to learn more about us, visit our website at www.caseconfirmed.com. Thanks for listening. According to a 2017 CDC report, suicide is the second leading cause of death in the 15 to 24 age group. We're lucky to have Dr. Arthi Kumaravil on this episode to talk about the problem and help us understand what we can do better to help improve mental health access on college campuses. Dr. Kumaravil is a psychiatry resident with an interest in clinical ethics, narrative ethics, and humanism in medicine. She received her MD from the University of Pennsylvania. I just find the patients and their stories just so grasping. And I think every day I'm open to a different kind of suffering. What are the biggest barriers for students in accessing mental health care? Students coming onto college campuses are going through a large life change. They're leaving home for the first time. They're in a very vulnerable age period where a lot of psychiatric disorders unfortunately manifest. That late teens, early 20s, they're still on their parents' insurance for the most part. And so trying to find care that both doesn't show up on their parents' insurance, trying to have that private confidentiality is is difficult when you're still a dependent. But what about BetterHelp or Talkspace or other apps that could be paid for out of pocket? What is the role of mobile apps and technology in helping students? A lot of my colleagues have also been struggling with this question of what is the role of the apps on an iPhone, for example, or the technology using telepsychiatry to work with a patient because there's a lot of cues that we use in terms of being with the patient, their body language, and not just talking with them. And it's a double-edged sword when you use an app, for example. Apps can be very convenient. Catalog how your mood is every time you wake up. You just need to input that into a phone. In fact, we've A lot of psychiatrists have debated the use of using social media like Facebook as a way to monitor how someone's doing. So, for example, especially we can go back to our college campus uh, scenario, a lot of times students come to psychiatry's attention after they write a very provocative post or something that's concerning that then reaches a lot of people. As you can imagine, this is huge for depression where someone might be isolating more and it might come off to their peers as, oh, they're studying more, they're busy, but until they give that little bit of SOS on a Facebook message, for example, the real torment that that individual is feeling doesn't get heard. So does this mean that access to social media is a net positive or a net negative for mental health? I think depending on how it's used, it can be either or. So as I mentioned, this kind of call for help and the support that folks who, even if in the non-cyber world, they feel isolated, they can reach out. Flip side is you also have a huge arena of non-monitored dialogue that's happening that's either misinformation or cyberbullying. There's a lot of avenues that that also opens up. Did you touch on some ways that student health and wellness centers have tried to improve mental health on college campus? Some of the changes that I've seen on college campuses is, A, just promoting 
awareness about times of stress. Like, hey, here's a place that you can come study. Here's a yoga break. Here's a come chat with someone if you're feeling overwhelmed. So a lot of just basic tips that sometimes get thrown on the wayside. It's always been particularly interesting to me how things like trigonometry were considered essential skills to learn in high school, but coping with difficult life events was not even touched upon. Do you think there's a place in college campuses for integrating that into their curriculum? Absolutely. In fact, I would say a little bit of, to echo a little bit of what you mentioned, Mira, that We get taught all these subjects. There's a lot of pressure put on students in terms of academic success, academic success. And I think that trickles down into not developing some of the core skills of being a human being, being resilient, being able to address failures, for example. I think one running theory in terms of the increasing suicide rates, both at the college and unfortunately now the high school level is we're developing our kids to you know, be very good at trigonometry or be very good at world history and get those grades and so that they can go to a good college so that they can go and get a good job. We're not really teaching in our curriculum or emphasizing even how do we move forward from failures? How do we deal with managing one's finances? And so I think having some sort of curriculum in place, whether it's freshmen coming into college or an orientation section, if it's not a required class, just on how to be and how to start being an adult. That is the largest difference that a lot of the college students are facing, that they're now an adult, even if they're in a somewhat sheltered world or in a bubble of sorts. And something I've always been curious about is whether or not we're just seeing it more and diagnosing it more. I think it's, the answer to your question would be both. I think we are recognizing it, and I think in some ways that's a positive, that we are catching it, we're aware of it, there's more attention being paid to it. Flip side is you run into the problem of overdiagnosis, you run into the problem of kids being on too much medications. I think ADHD is a great example of kids on all manner of the spectrum being diagnosed and being placed on Adderall or Ritalin or take your pick of stimulant. Some of those kids are within the realm of normal, they're in a gray zone, and they get diagnosed and placed into this quote-unquote pathologic category. Some things I've heard from child psychiatrists in particular is this push from parents to even diagnose if they know that their kids are struggling in school to find a medical reason that they're struggling and not just to accept that Maybe their child is not that strong at math and getting B's and C's is okay. Um, So I think there's more and more pressure being trickled down to the younger generation, the younger kids, and they're starting to feel that. One solution to reducing stress is taking a quote-unquote mental health day. Do you think of this as a joke concept or something that we should all be taking more seriously? Thank you, Mira. Yeah, I think in terms of the way society views, quote, mental health day, it's almost this phrase that people throw out as a day that, oh, I don't really feel like going into work. Maybe I'll take this day to like binge watch my favorite TV show. And it's not considered to the seriousness of, let's say, if someone was physically ill. Usually call in and you're like, oh, I have this really bad headache, so I can't focus on what I'm doing or et cetera. But 
if you call in and say, I'm feeling so depressed that I can't even get out of my bed, there's almost this stigma against have treating either depression or any other symptoms, like someone's very, very anxious about something is, oh, that's something you should be able to handle. You need to come into work. That's not going to affect work. You're not going to be, quote unquote, spreading it to other people. So there is a difference in terms of maybe how one's boss might view that, especially given the kind of flippant view that we, quote unquote, call a mental health day when maybe in some ways we should call it just a sick day versus I'm playing hooky and maybe even get rid of the term mental health day in the casual way that we mean it. Since we're on the topic of terminology, let's talk a little bit about the DSM. First of all, the DSM has described mental illness in a variety of ways over its history, um, many of which would not be considered acceptable today. The second thing is... It's natural, I think, in many life circumstances to feel depression or to feel certain emotions. You know, things have their ups and downs. I think this issue came up a lot in the change from the DSM-4 to the DSM-5 of how grief was categorized. So in terms of major depressive disorder, you had exclusions for, like, grief in X amount of time period that they removed. So there was a big uproar about this because suddenly we're calling what might be a quote-unquote normal reaction to someone passing away or a loss of some kind now as meeting criteria for major depressive disorder. And this does run the risk of A, are we pathologizing all this normal behavior that's part of being human? And one way to think about it is, yes, in some ways we are. Part of the rationale for doing that, I believe, was to provide more help for individuals in their time of suffering. I think that the DSM, for all of its positives and for all of its flaws, exists to help at least somewhat figure out what's going on with someone's internal suffering and to provide them that the help that they need. So let's say someone's grief, as appropriate as it is for their circumstances that they grew up in, either religious, moral, whatnot, their temperament, so to speak, if it starts affecting the kind of person they want to be, the kind of person they are with other people, their goals, their values, if it starts seriously impacting that for a longer than expected time period, we we would consider that generally suffering of some kind. And so whether does that need medication depends on the individual. Would that individual for that tough period in their life need some professional help, couldn't hurt. And I think that's a little bit of the idea behind quote-unquote pathologizing what might be in the normal realm of human behavior. That being said, one of the issues with the DSM, especially in a lot of its iterations, is that what is considered normal is very societally driven. So you will see some 
differences in terms of how the DSM is used in the U.S. versus abroad in terms of some of the diagnostic criteria used. And you'll see with time, what is normal is, you know, we had homosexuality as a pathology in the DSM-3. Right now, that seems almost ridiculous to us to think that that was considered pathology. And so the DSM is as much a helpful tool as it is, in some ways, societal judgments as well. And I think that's why there's more of a push now to find biological bases of the symptomatology that we're seeing so we can have a better classification scheme that hopefully takes a little bit of the societal aspect out. But I think at the end of the day, psychiatry is both an exciting and challenging field because it has this combination of what is what makes us us, what makes us normal, what is the mind. Uh, some folks would argue that the construct of mental illness doesn't exist. Not so much in that the suffering that individuals experience doesn't exist, but that what is something mental? What is the mind? The mind is not a tangible entity. If you were talking about organic brain disorders, sure. And what's happened historically over a while is as a quote-unquote psychiatric disorder now has a biological basis behind it, it gets moved into the field of neurology. My very naive hope is that eventually the fields of neurology and psychiatry will be able to fuse because we finally figured out what the underlying biological etiology of a lot of the pathologies that we see are. But until then, we're stuck with the DSM. So Dina wanted to know a little bit about the role of mindfulness in meditation in helping to maintain good mental health. I'm just curious to hear your perspective on, on how these things intersect with your field. In terms of mindfulness, in terms of yoga, yoga itself was originated from a more spiritual background. And I think part of it is to connect with your core, whether you believe in anything or not. There is this universality of finding that inner peace for you that helps with mental health. I think there's been this idea of, you know, meditation and calming oneself in many religions in across time that existed because it improved people's lives. And I think that's one way of thinking about the intersection of spirituality and providing mental health. I think they could go very much hand in hand. And in terms of things that it doesn't need to be a very intense one hour long meditation session or this intense workout of yoga, 10 minutes of just kind of removing yourself from everything that's going on. We live in a very fast paced world with a lot of information, just shutting that computer down, you know, saying goodbye to the internet for 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, whether it's in the morning when you first wake up or after you get home and you're like, I am super cranky about my work day or my school day, or I'm really stressed about all this homework I have, just taking a moment to just take those 10 minutes to just focus on yourself. You can do a more active form of this. You could start cleaning your apartment and just focus on cleaning your apartment for five to 10 minutes. Doesn't even need to be that clean. It's okay. Just that you're you're focusing all of your energy on what you're doing in that moment. And that in itself is 
the core of what mindfulness is, core of a form of meditation, but it can be helpful for everyone to do. Dina, I know we were talking about apps earlier, but have you ever heard of three-minute mindfulness? I have heard of it, but I haven't used it personally. So many people really want to start a meditation habit, but they go in really hard with it, and they don't start with a small level where they need to be. And I, I personally think it helps to meditate in groups, different you know, meditation communities. And I find that having that weekly time to meet with people who are also interested in meditation is a little bit more motivating sometimes than doing it by yourself. So thank you for that. Thank you, Dr. Kumaravel, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. If you're feeling suicidal or in a crisis, Samaritans is a great resource for you. You can call their toll-free helpline at 1-800-273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org.